Her pulse raced the whole journey to this sterile community centre to join a circle of not entirely random strangers. It had been a long time coming, 17 years, 3 months, 2 days. The trek from the tube station saw Monica equivocate time and again, stopping mid-stride several times to attend to her non-ringing mobile, staring at the inactive screen as her mind deliberated. Last week, she naively told Diane about her intentions and true to recent form, Diane had rallied. Be sure not to rush into anything, Monica. Her sister's preferred tongue, sarcasm. Diane was fluent. People passed Monica by, convinced she was reading a text, or more likely they gave her no mind at all. She'd noticed there was less London strutting on the pavements of late, more brisk dashing, the turn of seasons. The impending descent into yet another winter was upon them already. Something in Monica, something she could not yet name, pushed her on, and she scuttled up the stairs and followed another Melingra into the only room with lights on. Monica had done her best to give due attention to each recounting that had preceded hers. First up was the good-looking man who'd inadvertently and forever knocked out his best mate while sparring during their first and only semester at uni. Then the barely adult Jay Walker who'd absentmindedly crossed despite the red man only to be followed by a random toddler briefly ignored by its parents who never made it to the other side. Both were bested, if that could be possible, by the old lady who'd seen one of the London tube bombers that, were that very morning and had failed to say anything. The old lady was still frozen these years later, unable to fathom how she might ever redeem herself, so many lives lost. Given the nod, Monica had steeled herself, compelling her chin upwards. Don't blather, she reminded herself. And Monica began the story of how she had killed her adored younger brother, Caleb. He had turned just 18. Welcome to the Good Reading Magazine podcast, sponsored by Pantera Press. Good Reading is a monthly magazine dedicated to books and reading and aims to help readers discover their next favourite book. You can find out more about the books discussed on today's podcast at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Hi and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Angus Dalton here with you. You just heard Matt Howard reading from his latest novel, The Time Is Now, Monica Sparrow. In the novel, four isolated people are thrown together in the wake of a tragedy. Monica is a frenetic budding novelist. Her sister, Diane, delivers sharp-tongued insults that come with a whiff of vodka. Xavier is a book editor and a neurotic minimalist, and young Jamie is a kind young man who's a bit of a black sheep. Matt is with me now to tell us more about these characters and the novel. Hi, Matt. Thanks Hi, for having me. Thanks for having me. <laughs> so you work at HarperCollins in Sydney, whose offices we're in now. How did your career in the world of magazine and book publishing begin? Uh, you know, I did that sort of thing after school where, or after uni and just a short time of, of working. I went overseas and when I came back from living in London, coincidentally, where this book is set, I just sort of thought I wanted to do something a little bit different and I looked around and I just thought, oh, I've got to get a job in advertising or book publishing or magazines. I didn't really care what, but something sort of creative. Um, and so I just applied for jobs and then I, I did get a job as a sales rep for one publishing house and I've sort of been in the industry since. I've been at different publishing houses. I've worked at the retail side with Angus Robertson 
and yeah, just all in and around book publishing. Yeah, fantastic. So was it something you always wanted to do or considered? No, or just sort I of hadn't a given it spare much thought thing? up until then. It was really just whatever jobs were in the paper of, you know, a type of job, a creative industry, but not specifically books at yeah. that point. But And so it's been, I've been here ever since. Yeah. So how would you describe your role at HarperCollins now? Now I do marketing and publicity for other authors' non-fiction titles. So I very much work primarily on non-fiction books and just sort of getting authors, interviews and media attention, um, review coverage, that sort of thing. Fantastic. Have you, what's the author that you've met or worked with where you've been the most starstruck? Gosh, that's a good one. I do get quite a few big sports celebrities. So some of those people like Cadell Evans or Mitchell Johnson or Jeff Horn, the boxer. So they're tend to be the ones that have entourages and, and agents and so there is a lot more around them so I guess they're the most inspiring in that regard. So the time is now Monica Sparrow is your fourth novel after Street Furniture Taking Off and Ethan Grout. That's is that right. right? Yeah. Um, how would you describe your style of novel writing or the genre that you're working in? Well it's a bit hard to say but I mean of late people are now sort of classifying a particular type of genre as uplit um, which I had never considered before. But it could well be that that's what I've been writing. I'm not saying I discovered it. But um, it feels like my book, you know, to make classification easy probably falls into that. You know, it, it, they tend to be smaller novels. They're not grand sweeping events. They're contemporary. They usually have characters that a lot of people, I think, could relate to. And they're not living extravagant lives, but they are combining and meeting and they've got things to overcome and they're small but sort of hopefully have impact yeah absolutely i think that's one of the cool things about reading your novels because so many books about the rich and the famous and the supernaturally talented it's just lovely to read really engaging narrative about normal people thank you (laughs) (laughs) so did that ambition to start writing novels come because you accidentally became surrounded by books basically yeah it's funny though i've always pretty much a lot of the time I've been focused in non-fiction. So I, was, I became aware of the industry, but I was never thinking I would write a non-fiction book. But I, um, yeah, I think it, maybe it's not a coincidence, but I, I guess whilst I was working in publishing is when I really started seriously keeping notes. Never in my first book with the intent of writing a book, but I would always just write down anecdotes or funny thoughts or observances and eventually I had so many and I thought I should really assemble them and structure them and soon I was writing a novel without really any great intention to do that. Yeah. Mm. Um, A lot of people say that they sort of came across their ambition to write when they were reading a book and they sort of had this feeling that, oh, I could do this, I want to do this. Did you have a moment like that? No, I don't think so. I, I, I still don't think I've ever sat down consciously and thought I'm going to be an author. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Even after four novels? <laughs> <laughs> Come on. <laughs> um, so I love the title of your novel, The Time Is Now, Monica Sparrow. It's so fun to say. Um, and it's got this sort of enigmatic and tantalising feel to it. Can you give us any hints as to why the novel took that title? Well, actually, it was. It, it's had so many working titles. There was. It was called... I even forget some of them. It was called The Third Quarter at one stage, talking about the third quarter of life. Mm. 
you know, maybe when you're in your 40s and stuff and you're looking down the barrel of the third stage out of four. Um, it, I think it originally it was also called the Sparrows of Neeston. Mm. Uh, Neeston is the suburb in London where it's set and it's sort of a nothing suburb. A sort of people in London would be familiar with it. It's sort of neither here nor there. Uh, it doesn't have a grand reputation or, you know, everybody doesn't have an impression of it. Um, so it was a bit, it was working off that, but of course Neesden doesn't really, you know, Australian audience don't necessarily get that. Anyway, I do think there was an Oasis song um, that had the phrase, the right time is always now within the song. And I think mm -hmm. I got the time is now sort of from there. And then, of course, put in Monica Sparrow. You know, Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine, not bad, having the character's name in the title. So I was sort of combining a few things like that. Oh, I see that. Funny you mentioned that because the uh, Eleanor Oliphant book was sort of the genesis of the uplift exactly, thing. Exactly, so, yeah. Well, okay, all the connections are and coming. And that's a HarperCollins book. book. So oh, okay. I, I hear a lot about that book. Okay, so, yeah. that totally makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Cool, cool, cool. Each of your novels is set in a different city, and as you as you've said, this book is set in Neesden, which is known as the loneliest village in London, which you were just talking about. How did the story come to be set there? Well, I to be honest, originally when I started writing the book, it was set in Australia. It was set in Melbourne, um, and after a period of time, a few, I did get some feedback that this was a very English or London sort of a novel. And I think it's true. I think it, it's just got a sort of temperament that makes it feel sort of London. So I decided to change the setting to London, which was not as tricky as you'd think. I mean, the setting is not paramount to this book in terms... I mean, it's in a city, but it's not, it does, it's not like it's a Manhattan novel or anything like that. So um, changing it was not too bad. You just make a few cultural ch reference changes and things like that. Uh, and then Neesden, I've lived in Neesden, so, you know, it's always right what you know. So, you know, just when you're, when you're saying things and just, you know, passing references to distances between the tube station and a supermarket or whatever, when you've lived that place, you know that stuff already. So it, it, it just saves you having to do that level of research. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So when the novel was set in Melbourne, was it called The Time Is Now Monica Magpie? <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> okay. But I did have to check that Sparrow exists in number in London, you know, for example. Oh, of course. So there's just things you've got to make sure of, you know, and I think there's some bats in the book at one point, just a passing reference. Do they have bats in London? You've got to Google and make sure, you know. So there's, there's a little bit of that. Yeah, definitely. Um, so we've got Monica, who is the budding novelist of the title. Uh, why did you make that character an aspiring writer? Well, I, you know, it just sort of made sense because the very first character was Xavier, who is later appointed as her editor. And, and it's very much about him being a minimalist. And, of course, being an editor was a good job for him. You know, you're sort of in his life, he's reduced things around him and even the people around him to the bare minimum, which is sort of as addictive, I think, as some folks that are hoarders in surrounding themselves with stuff. So he was the exact opposite. And so a good job for him, a good job for a character like that would be an editor because they're slashing and burning. And so, of course, I needed these two main characters to meet. So what better, you know, thing to have than, you know, Monica being somebody who was a writer and wrote very verbose and needed the words to be, you know, cut. Um, and so this was a reason for these two characters to meet. 
Yeah, I really love the uh, the metaphoric parallel there of the editor being, you know, the extreme minimalist and mm. getting rid of all these possessions. Like, I think we meet uh, Xavier when he's trying to sleep and he can hear a mosquito buzzing and it's driving him crazy. And he's like, maybe I shouldn't have got rid of those fly screens. Exactly. So, yeah, yeah. he's really that extreme sort of... He knows he's gone too far sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, yeah, even Marie Kondo would be like, slow down. <laughs> I think with Xavier. Yeah. But it totally makes sense, as you say, because he's an editor. And then, of course, Monica, the writer, is just a complete hoarder and there's crap everywhere. So that totally makes sense. Um, but what actually inspired his extreme neurotic minimalism so was that the first thing that came to you about that character yeah i mean you know i i do approach a book sort of in a filmic sense so you know i was always just thinking oh uh, you know film you know especially slug lines for a film you know a couple of sentences that they use to pitch a film it's really about when when x meets y you know um and so i think the idea of a hoarder and a minimalist being thrown together you know it's like the odd couple and there's so many tropes about odd couples that go on a road trip and you know there's one person and they're exact opposite so this was really about getting a a minimalist and a hoarder I thought were really you know I was very interested in watching shows about hoarders and of course often if you've watched enough of those shows about hoarding on television you you know that their you know their relationship with things usually has gone awry when they've had a really bad setback in their life something really calamitous has happened to them whether it's the loss of a child or a divorce or something like that and so I thought you know that covered off Monica in a sense and and she was going to have a backstory in that regard Um, with Xavier I thought how do you explain somebody who's gone extremely over the top with minimalism it's not the same um, but it is just as big a deal and takes over one's life so I sort of thought that maybe he just really had bad experiences with having too much previously and you know his backstory is his family was a you know a a big removalist company empire came from wealth and of course he was trained from the bottom up and he was sent into houses where they had a lot of stuff that needed to be moved and so he very early realized the you know the cumbersome nature of having stuff yeah Yeah. there is actually that show that i think pairs like a clean freak with a minimal exactly yeah i have seen that Yeah. yeah so it's a good combo absolutely yeah um what side of the spectrum would you lie on definitely on the clean minimalist i mean there's a lot of me and xavier okay to be quite honest yeah Yeah. does that uh extend to how you organize your books at home are you one of those people that you know i have so few books at home oh really interesting okay yeah yeah. i don't want to sound like el mcpherson but i've only got my own books really (laughs) and and a few others maybe not too many okay so no complicated organizational system needed okay great um, so uh, the one of the other characters uh, in the book is Diane, Monica's mm-hmm. sister, and she's rather acerbic, let's say. Yeah, um, yeah. She can be quite cruel to Monica. Does she have reason to be cruel? Yeah, she, you know, the, the awful thing that had happened in their life, um, and I'm not giving it away because you, you're clear about this in the beginning and even from the bit that I read, is that they did have a younger brother who died quite young at 18. And so Diane clearly blames her sister, Monica, for that. So I think there's a few hints early on that they did have a very strong and happy relationship, these two sisters. But clearly, without overstating it, I guess you you work out pretty quickly that 
Diane is a different person to what she was back then, not a not as nice a person, and clearly that may well be because she's not gotten over the loss and she is even worse to Monica because I think she blames Monica for that loss. Yeah. What? Um, how did you come to the idea of the actual sort of plot structure, I guess, and like the, the death of their um, brother? Like did those, the characters come to you first and you were like, I want to throw something at them and see how they react? Or was it more the plot came first and then you populated characters around that? Yeah, I think, I think the... The idea of Monica as a hoarder definitely came first and I don't think... But then I knew that there'd have to have been a loss, some sort of tragedy um, because that was clear from all of those hoarding shows that that's what in, what initiates sort of that problem. So it was just really coming up with... And I didn't want her, you know... I mean, obviously, she needed to blame herself for that so it's sort of hard. You can't just say, well, her mother had died and, you know... and there was no blame to be had and sort of get over it. So I think it's harder to get over something if you blame yourself. But on the other hand, I didn't want her to have been as involved in the death as someone would say, well, yeah, you did kill that person and you killed them maliciously. So it was to be an accident that she was obviously there and she was involved. But, you know, you could see how one would blame themselves. But, you know, she was not really to be blamed. Yeah, definitely. Um, how would you say the character of Jamie fits into these other characters? Well, well, Jamie is sort of really the the real black sheep. So he's the one on the edge that doesn't really have a family and has sort of become involved in Monica's family later in life. I mean, he's only in his early 20s, but, it, you know, a bit old to say that he becomes their brother because he's already, already an adult. Um, but he is sort of flung on them and, of course... In one way, you could say he is the opportunity for Monica to make up for having lost one brother. Maybe she can do what she can for this foundling, as it were. Um, And he's the exact opposite of the brother they've lost. The brother they've lost was sort of a hero. You know, he's all very sociable, very friendly. You know, cricketing star, rugby star, at university, everything to look forward to. Um, And then Jamie's sort of the exact opposite. And so... Monica decides to take him as her project, I suppose, um, and Diane is just repelled by the thought that you know he could in any way replace the brother that they had lost. Yeah, Jamie is such a lovely character, though. Just one of those very unassuming but interesting people, and I love the description of him as um, uh, the little guy relegated to the middle of the bench seat of a tradesman's van. Yeah, yeah, just like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hardworking, He's overlooked. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Overlooked and not noticed, you know what I mean? Yeah. And so, of course, Monica, who's going through so much, does notice him. And, of course, she's driven. I mean, it might not be for the right reasons. Maybe she's just wanting to redeem herself by having this project, as I call him. But, um, but of course, he changes as well and he becomes a mo- lot more well-rounded just because people have invested some time in him. Yeah. Um, you've said that a theme that runs through all of your books is this theme of outsiders or black sheep, mm. uh, which is what you used to describe Jamie. Um, why is that a theme that you find interesting to explore in your books? Yeah, I'm, I'm not even sure. I think I'm just naturally drawn to, you know, not the superstar, not the clearly number one person in a situation. You know, I'm sort of just always interested in what others have got to say. So I'm not sure where that comes from. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess, you know, so many stories as well are all about 
shining a light on the black sheep and the yeah, person yeah. ignored. So, yeah. yeah. Um, there's a really beautiful flashback scene in the book where you see Jamie rescue an injured sparrow. And obviously, uh, the time is now Monica Sparrow. The significance of sparrows is clear Not on the too subtle, right? Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Uh, but is, is there any sort of symbolic uh, um, significance of these little birds to your story? Well, it's funny, isn't it? I saw a review in The Australian on the weekend and, and they'd actually seen... They'd actually taken it further than I'd even thought of it, you know, that the... The flight represents the ability to escape the cage that you're in. I had not given it any that I was not being that multi-layered, but I guess there's something in that. But I guess a sparrow is a little bird that is, so, you know, it's 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 not a peacock, so it's not. You could probably get lost as a single sparrow amongst a million. So I think that idea, and also what the little, you know, that a, a little mouse or a sparrow can have a great impact as an elephant might but you know given the opportunity yeah um i would love to know some of your favorite books and authors well i really like lionel shriver and she's a harper collins author as well but i i really like her writing and her her books um and joshua ferris is another one that i nominate uh which is a book called then we all came to the end, which is a really office-placed sort of contemporary, humorous sort of, you know, like the TV show The Office, really. Um, that those sorts of characters all combined in an office place. I I, I like those. I like books that are set in contemporary, um, you know, places that you're used to, familiar with. Yeah, it's not very often. I think there was another book from Transit Lounge that was all about that, like telling the story of someone going to work and not yeah. an interesting job either, like nah. working at a storage factory. Yeah. And just thinking when reading that, and I chatted to that author as well, and just saying how rare it is to find people sort of doing normal things yeah. in a book. Yeah, I think you have to work harder, and I think characters have to be stronger and dialogue better. You know, you sit in a police station or a hospital or, you know, in a courtroom, it's all a bit too easy, I think. Yeah, definitely. Um, so once people have read The Time Is Now, Monica Sparrow, do you have any other recent books that have impressed you that you would recommend they go and pick up? Well, I keep coming up with HarperCollins books. I don't mean to do we'll that We'll forgive purpose. you, it's fine. But, Take you know, all these I, recommendations with a grain of salt, yeah, people. <laughs> I, know, I know we're having a particularly strong fiction list and Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine as one. Boyce Waller's Universe is another one of ours getting a huge amount of acclaim. So I think, you know, there's some really good, strong Australian fiction out there. Yeah, definitely. Um, apart from the fact that, you know, Monica is a budding writer and Xavier is a book editor, were there any, any other sort of little anecdotes or experiences that you took from the book world and brought into The Time Is Now, Monica Sparrow? Oh, you know, there are, as you know, a few chapters set quite strictly within the publishing offices that Xavier works at and, you know, just sort of the meetings and the, you know, the things that go through different people's minds and their conversations when they're looking to acquire books and some of the sort of whimsical, humorous uh, things that they balance when they're deciding whether to sign an author or sign a topic. Um, you know, I've tried to cram some of that in because I, I think it is an amusing workplace. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think people yeah. are really interested in the inner machinations of the book exactly. world as well. Yeah, so it's yeah. fun to uh, to visit that, as I'm doing now. Yeah. And, um, well, thank you so much, Matt. I asked everything Thanks, that Angus. I wanted to. Great questions. And, um, yeah, well, the book is really fantastic and really unique. I hadn't read a book quite like it in a while. So it was really fabulous yeah. to read and it was absolutely wonderful listening to you talk. So thank you. Thanks a lot. 
Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Good Reading Podcast. The Time Is Now, Monica Sparrow, is published by Transit Lounge. You can find it in all good bookshops, including Good Reading's online bookshop at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. Bye.